we've been studying the epistle to the Philippians. And it's really fit very well into the Christmas season. Uh, again, I will share with you, for me personally, Christmas is one of the most wonderful times of the year. I had great Christmases as a child growing up, so I love the Christmas season. But as I've grown in my relationship with God, I have developed an understanding that Christmas really is sort of overblown in the Christian calendar, as I mentioned during the communion. Or yeah, during the communion, really Easter is our big, big deal, but we don't celebrate it quite the same way we do as Christmas. Nonetheless, I love Christmas. I understand Christmas and the Christmas season is hard for many. But this book that we're studying, this epistle to the Philippians, I believe can help us in the most difficult of circumstances to draw out joy. Now, Paul several times throughout the four chapters to the Philippians talks about joy and rejoicing in the most difficult of circumstances. Remember that the Apostle Paul is in Roman prison at this time. He is awaiting trial before Caesar Nero, not the most stable of individuals. He doesn't know what his fate is going to be. And yet, in the midst of that, as he writes to the Philippians, he's just filled with joy. And there's a variety of circumstances within which he draws out joy. So if you're one of those people who have a struggle with the Christmas holiday season, if it's a reminder or a, a, a remembrance of difficult times, this book, and especially I believe this message today, is for you. Remember the definition of joy that I gave to you. And it's not my definition. It's really based upon the word used, the Greek word used and translated as joy. It's exultant gladness or euphoric peace. And my own addition to that is that it's a deep and abiding awareness of our connectedness to God. Sort of like Val was sharing here this morning about the holy ground. If God indeed created all the world and all of the universe, then he has a hand upon every step that we take. Now, we are in chapter 2, verse 12, and Paul begins by saying, Therefore, my dear friends. Now, you've probably heard this said before, but I'm, it bears repeating. Whenever you see a therefore, you need to stop and ask, what is it there for? And so you look at the therefore in verse 12, and you go back to the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, Paul is addressing the Philippians and a growing division that is arising in their fellowship. We know in chapter 4 that Paul exhorts two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. They have ministered with him side by side in the gospel, and yet there is some division that is arising between them. And Paul, in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, draws the Philippians back to a foundational understanding of what Christian relationship is supposed to look like. And it's based upon us having the mind of Christ. 
In other words, us looking at relationships in the same way that Jesus looked at relationships. Paul said that Jesus, though he was in the very nature of God, did not consider that equality with God something that he had to use to his own advantage. He made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant, and found in appearance as a man he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So likewise, Paul says we need to have that mindset of humility in relationship with one another, where we don't engage one another posturing ourselves as better than or superior to one another. Or, or what more often happens in Christian circles is trying to win the argument. This is the way it should be done. This is what the Scripture really means. You know, I'm trying to overwhelm someone to prove the rightness of our position. Paul, Paul says, in humility, we are to value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So Paul has exhorted the Philippians with this growing division to humble themselves, to take the posture of a servant, to look out for the needs of others first before their own needs. That's the mind of Christ. Now, It's one thing for us to be told that. It's another for us to understand it. But it's altogether different to begin to practice it. Isn't it? It's very difficult for us to truly take upon ourselves the posture of a servant. To truly be in that position where we are looking out for the needs and the interests of others before our own. And to do so without seeking accolades, without seeking the attaboys or girls, to just serve because that's how Jesus lived his life. It's a step of faith that we all need to take to put into action this mindset of humility with one another. Churches have divided, I can't remember the last time I read, but there's well over a thousand different uh, church organizations, church denominations, church types around the world. Now, it's the same gospel. It's the same Lord. Paul says to the Philippians, there's one baptism, one Lord, one spirit. And yet, we have a thousand different groups. And I think in large measure, that's because we fail to humble ourselves when we get gathered together. We try to win. We try to take control. Now, there are obviously certain battles worth stepping up to. But largely, it's pride, it's arrogance, it's self that causes us to split. And as I said to you last week, when the body of Christ is divided, who bleeds? So Paul says to them, because of this mindset that you are to have, and because as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, I want you to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he's saying, I want your obedience here to not be an external force that is conforming you into something. He said that to the Romans. He said, don't be conformed to this world. He said, I don't want your obedience to be the result of conforming to an outside pressure, but I want your obedience to be from an inward power that is emerging and arising within you. And this is really the gospel, and we'll talk about this in much more depth in a few minutes. But he wants their their obedience 
to be not because he's in their presence and they're trying to impress him. That's religion. But he wants their obedience to be something internal that wells up within them due to a relationship with an unseen God that died for them. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is a verse that has confused many. It's not suggesting that we have to work for our salvation. Scriptures are very clear about that. What Paul is saying to them is, you have been saved. God has sent his own son to die on your behalf. You are new creatures in Christ, and you have been saved from the wrath of God, which is to come. And because of that salvation, you are to take full advantage of everything that God has given to you. The, the, the term there, translated work out, in, in other places is used to describe a miner's work, where a miner goes into a mine and he extracts all of the valuable ore from that mine. He possesses the mine, but he's got to go into the mine and to do the work to pull the ore out in order to take full advantage of what he possesses. That is what Paul is telling us here. You have salvation. You are possessors of God's free gift. But are you fully mining all that God has given to you? It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Stop and think about that. Are you taking advantage of that? You are sons and daughters of the Most High God. You are children of the Lord. You have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are seated in the heavenly places, it says, with Christ. All things have become yours, the gospel says. Are you taking advantage of that? Jesus said, when you pray in faith, believing, you will receive what you ask for. I mean, there's so many promises in this book and so many advantages that we have been given as Christians, as believers, that we don't fully mind, that we don't work out, that we don't put the effort into discovering. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying there's so much to this salvation, Philippians, that you have not even fully taken advantage of. And already there's a split that is beginning to occur within your fellowship. He says, work out what is truly yours in fear and in trembling. Then one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, verse 13. Why? Why do you work out? Not just why, really, but also how. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I'm going to read that again. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is in us. That is the promise of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment to assure us, in essence, that God is going to make good on his promise, that everything he has said he will fulfill because he has given us the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit within us who is at work to direct our wills 
to be in alignment with his. There's a, there's a doctrine called prevenient grace. And that's just a fancy way of saying that everything that happens, God is first involved in it. God is at work in your life. He is speaking to you. Maybe not audibly, but he is speaking to you through circumstances, through your, your conscience, through your sense of awareness of the circumstances around you, through your reading of the scriptures. God is speaking to you, and through his spirit in you is directing your steps in a certain path. He is giving you a desire to do things for him that align with his good purpose. People have asked me, Greg, how do I know what the will of God is? And I say to them, are you seeking after God? Is God your greatest pleasure? Patrick, would you put up uh, Psalm 37, 4? If you're seeking after God and God is your greatest pleasure, then this scripture applies to you. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if you're seeking after other things, if you're seeking worldly power, position, prominence, whatever, then this scripture probably doesn't apply to you. You are probably resisting the will of God. But for the vast majority of us, God is speaking to us and the desires of our heart well up and align with what he wants for us and how he is trying to direct us. It is God at work in us to will. He is aligning our will with his. But he is also giving us power to act in accordance with that will. Now, there are so many examples in the Bible that uh, are good examples of impossible odds that God wants to demonstrate his power through. For example, Gideon. Gideon had over 10,000 men aligned with him to go and to fight the Midianites. God said, too many, too many, Gideon. And he ultimately whittled it down to 300 men who were to take on over 20,000 Midianites. Impossible odds, right? But that was to demonstrate that it was the power of God at work in Gideon's life. Same thing with David, just a little shepherd boy walks up to give some cheese and milk to his brothers who are in the army there at the Valley of Elah. And he sees this, this Philistine champion coming out and taunting the armies of the living God. And David says, what's going on here, guys? How come we're not taking him down? And everybody's shaking in their armor. And David says, who's this guy to defy the living God? And so David goes out with a sling and a few stones, takes Samson down with one shot. Again, it's God's power at work in us. And so in your life, you need to understand that it's not just your flesh and bones that you are at work with in ministry. If it were the case, we wouldn't get very much done. We are Gideon. We are David. We face impossible odds, but it is God's power at work in us. Patrick put up Ephesians 3.20. Look at, this is one of my favorite scriptures, and it overwhelms me every time I read it. And I often use it in prayer, but sometimes I don't actually take it home. 
Now, to him who is able, speaking of God, to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So God is able to do immeasurably more. How much is immeasurably? Well, more than we can measure. He is able to do that according to his power. And where is his power? It's at work in us. Now, this is something that when you go home today, (laughs) you should say, wow, God is at work in me. His immeasurable power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in each one of us. What's your ministry in your home, in your workplace, in your family? Who is it that you are having a difficult time forgiving? Because you say, I can't forgive that person. Oh, yes, you can. God is at work in you in an immeasurable sense to give you the power to do exactly that. I can't be a servant. I can't do the things that Paul is talking about here. Yes, you can. You can empty yourself through the power of God and serve others. There's a story told of Edmund Halley. We know him today because a comet is named after him. I shared this yesterday at the Tree of Life because it's it's an amazing story, I find. Uh, Edmund Halley was a friend of Isaac Newton. Of course, we all know Isaac Newton. What happened to Isaac Newton? Apple fell on his head, right? Or something like that. Newton and Halley were friends. And of course, Newton began to develop these ideas, this notion that there was this force, an unseen force at work in the universe that guided the planets and guided matter. Ultimately, came to be known as gravity. Newton would share his ideas with Halley. And Halley would challenge Newton's ideas. Many times, Halley would even do the mathematics to recorrect or address problems in some of Newton's theories. And ultimately, it was Halley who said to Newton, you've got to publish this. And Halley paid for the publishing of of his great work, Mathematic Principles on Natural Philosophy. And all of us know of Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton is one of the giants in physics. But very few of us know that had not Edmund Halley emptied himself and served his friend, Isaac Newton, would Newton's theories have gained the prominence that they did. He emptied himself. And he did so through the power of God. So God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure and to do everything without grumbling or arguing so that we may be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and a crooked generation. So again, this power that is at work in us should work to make our lives stand out. That's what Paul is saying here. I mean, I don't think you can read it any other way. He is saying that the power should work in your life so that you live a life that is different than this warped and crooked generation in which we live. And certainly, if the generation in which Paul lived was warped and crooked, I can 
confidently say that today our generation is equally as warped and as crooked. And we should shine out as lights, as children of God. Again, mining our possessions as children of God. Doing everything without grumbling or, or complaining as we hold firm to the word of life. You know, it's, it, it is, uh, uh, I think, something that we need to honestly evaluate about our lives. And I put this question in the bulletin. But when you are confronted with hardship, with difficulty, with a situation that you would just as soon rather not have had to deal with, is it your habit to grumble or to glorify? Now, Paul says that you have the power to glorify. You have the power as you hold firm or fast or hold forth the word of life, Jesus Christ, the word of God. As you do that, as you are transformed through the renewing of your mind, you have the power to shine as a star in the sky, blameless and pure, fully mining the salvation that you are a possessor of. And Paul says that as you do this, to the Philippians, as you take full advantage of the salvation that you possess, as you allow God to work in you to align your will and to empower you to do his good purpose, you are going to be different. Your life will be changed. Others will look at you and say, what? That's not how you used to be. And you give the glory to God. Paul says, I want to be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not labor or run in vain. Speaking here of the Philippians. He wants to, on that very last day, be able to see the Philippians standing in the crowd with him, glorifying Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Philippians to finish well. He who began a good work in them, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6, would be faithful to complete it. And Paul says he wants to boast on that day that he did not labor or run in vain. He says, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. As I said, Paul was in Rome. He was a prisoner of Rome, and he had yet, at this point, to go before Caesar Nero and have his trial. So he didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And depending upon how you read the scriptures and your study of, of some historical documents, some people believe that Paul was uh, beheaded during this imprisonment. Some people say he was released and then later imprisoned once again and beheaded. Either way, Paul points out to them that regardless of what happens to him, even if I'm poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I will rejoice and be glad. Because Paul already had made the decision. His service was unto Jesus Christ. His life was a sacrifice in and of itself. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, not all of us have come to that point, have we? We're still grumbling a little bit rather than glorifying. You know, Kenny Chesney had a song out a few years ago. He said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to go right now. And it's sort of true, and I think it's even true for us as Christians. You know, if the proposition is given to you, okay, today you can die for Christ, 
Or you can go on living. You know, you might have to compromise your faith a little bit or whatever. Spencer just came back from Iraq, a place where Christians' lives literally are on the line. How many of us would say, for me to die is gain? I don't, you know, it's tough stuff. That's where the rubber meets the road here. We find joy in that service that, that Paul had demonstrated. Just imitating Christ. Being in, having Christ incarnated in him, literally. Paul served the Philippians. He wanted to see them finish well. And he was willing, regardless of whatever would happen to him, rejoice as they grew in their faith, as they, too, developed the the understanding and the life mission that to die is gain, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's where you find joy. When you understand that whatever, whatever you go through, whatever the challenge, whatever the uh, ridicule, whatever the, the persecution, whatever you go through, you know you have joy awaiting you on the other side. That's what it said Jesus ran for. It said Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the suffering of the cross. And so, as you go into this Christmas season, I want to suggest to you that it's not the ornaments and the lights and the songs that will give you joy. Because if that's true, that can so easily be taken away from you. I want to suggest to you that that joy that God wants to give to you is found in selfless service. Just like Halley served Newton, so too, take the posture. Put faith to your feet. Work out the salvation that God has so richly blessed you with and serve one another. Imagine the impact that this church could have on this community if we all adopted Paul's philosophy. To live as Christ, to die as gain, to serve as joy. No matter what happens to me, I'm good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that we have been given to be recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And Lord, as I look out upon this congregation, I see faces that I know have hearts filled with that kind of joy. And I just pray for all the rest of us that our hearts too, during this season of reflection, of focus, that you would transform us through your word, through your spirit, through the power dwelling in us, that you would do immeasurably more in each of our lives than we could ever begin to even think or imagine. Bless us, Lord, as we begin to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, normally I I give you a benediction here, but I'm going to do two things that are a little bit different. First, we're going to sing a song. And it's just a kid's camp song. So I want you all to stand up. And we're going to sing, I've got the joy. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. 
Down in my heart, down in my heart, I've got the joy, 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 down in my heart, down in my heart to stay. Okay, again, I've got the joy, 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 down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart, I've got the joy, 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 